C. diff spores and more is brought to you in part by Rebiotics, Microbiota Restoration Therapy. Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and we welcome our global listeners joining us. I'm Kevin Hirsch, and I am your host for today. We thank our sponsor, Rebiotics, a faring company, for their generous support. You can find out more about their microbiome research and clinical trials at www.rebiotics.com. That's www.rebiotics.com. Join us today with guest Dean Kirshner, Director of Nursing for Lincoln Glen Manor in San Jose, California, and Doe Cly, Senior Infection Preventionist for the Clorox Company, as they discuss the recent regulatory changes for infection control in long-term care settings. Dean and Doe will review Medicare's revised requirements for participation, including required policies for infection control in the long-term care setting. They will also talk about the unique infection control challenges that nursing homes face, as well as solutions through evidence-based recommendations, such as how to conduct infection prevention um, program evaluation, risk assessment, and work plan. This topic is very timely with the rapid increase of the aging population and seeking care outside of hospitals. Thank you for having us, Kevin. It's such a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, and it's my honor. Can you take a moment to introduce yourselves to tell us a little bit about you? Sure thing. So, Dofi here. I'm a registered nurse. I'm board certified in infection control and epidemiology. With an undergrad in microbiology, I recently completed a master's degree in public health at the University of Nevada. For the past 20 years, I've practiced infection control in the hospital setting. With my background in microbiology, I've always been fascinated with infection control. My career fate was sealed when I had to watch a mother say goodbye to her eight-year-old son. He died as a result of a vaccine-preventable disease. The causative agent, the chickenpox virus. From that point on, I vowed, not on my watch. I became an infection preventionist shortly thereafter, and I've never looked back. Can you take a moment to introduce yourselves to tell us a little bit about your career and background? Good morning, everyone. My name is Dean Kirshner. I'm also a registered nurse. My entire nursing career has been in the long-term care setting. I started out as a certified nurse assistant in the late 80s when I was a senior in high school. That was back when universal precautions and body substance isolation were being practiced. Over the years, I've watched infection control and isolation precautions evolve. When I became a director of staff development, infection control was part of my job duties, as is the practice in many nursing facilities. After a little bit of training in the area, I found I loved the investigation Nancy Drew aspect of infection control. There's also a great amount of education involved with being the infection preventionist, and I enjoy that as well. Thanks, Dean. You know, you mentioned that you've seen infection control practices evolve in long-term care. Why do you think there's an increased focus on infection control in this setting in the U.S.? Great question to get us started, Kevin. Let me start by stating the purpose of infection control according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services also known as CMS, which is to provide a safe, 
sanitary, and comfortable environment and to help prevent the development and transmission of communicable diseases and infections. The elderly population in the U.S. is rapidly increasing. In 2011, the first baby boomers turned 65 years of age. By 2030, the number of persons aged 65 years and older is expected to reach nearly 71 million and will make up 20% of the U.S. population. That's one out of every five persons. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, most Americans over the age of 65 will need long-term care services at some point in their lives. In 2014, approximately 1.4 million people resided in the 15,000-plus long-term care facilities in the U.S. So as you can see, with the rising long-term care population comes a greater need to prevent infections in this setting. Thank you for the context, Dean. Doe, can you tell us a little more about the magnitude of the infection problem today in nursing homes? Of course, Kevin. Um, so healthcare-associated infections, or HAIs as we call them, they're a very real problem for this population. The elderly are at higher risk for infection due to their frailty, their waning immune systems, the complexity of having multiple chronic conditions, prolonged healthcare stays, and overexposure to antibiotics. This overexposure places them at risk for antibiotic-resistant infections. It also places them at risk for Clostridioides difficile gastroenteritis. And note that I, I use the new term. It's no longer Clostridium. It's now Clostridioides. But I, we will simply refer to it as C. diff um, in this broadcast. So unfortunately, infection data is lacking for the long-term care population. But a 2008 study found that HAI rates ranged from 1.8 to 15.5 per 1,000 resident days. This rate is considerably higher than the 0.95 to 13 infections per 1,000 hospital days reported in a 2007 acute care study. Not only are higher HAI rates a problem, but evidence suggests that thousands of outbreaks such as influenza, norovirus, and C. diff occur in long-term care each and every year. In addition to the discomfort and pain that HAIs cause, the CDC reports that approximately 388,000 people die each year in long-term care as a result of these infections. And the sad truth is, most of these infections are preventable through well-planned infection prevention and control programs that are based on identified infection hazards. Dean, is anything being done now to address this problem? Yes, Kevin, there is. Historically, infection prevention and control programs in long-term care settings have not been as robust compared to the acute care settings. The federal government has recognized this problem. New legislation triggered by the Affordable Care Act and Impact Act of 2014 led to changes to the public health section of the Code of Federal Regulations, specifically Title 42, Part 483.80. CMS has revised its requirements for participation for long-term care facilities accordingly. The three-phase implementation of these new regulations started in 2016. By November of this year, long-term care facilities participating in Medicare must be in full compliance with these new rules. Surveyors will be looking for compliance with these new regulations during facility site visits and annual inspections. 
Facilities that are not in compliance with CMS regulations can be denied payment and may even be terminated from participation in Medicare and or Medicaid. With more than half of its funding coming from CMS, long-term care facilities cannot afford to be non-compliant with the new regulations. Dean, is there anything else that we can be doing? Absolutely. First, more studies are needed so that we can fully understand the issues and drivers around healthcare-associated infections in this setting. We also need more resources and tools for healthcare workers that are specific to long-term care. Dean, thank you for providing the rationale for the regulatory changes. Now, Doe, can you share with us some of the changes or or for uh, infection prevention and control programs in long-term care facilities? I sure can, Kevin, Um, but let's start with um, why we have regulations in the first place. We often groan at the idea of more regulations, but the reality is they do drive practice. Additionally, regulations spell out the behaviors that are required in order to receive reimbursement, which is a huge motivator for long-term care facilities. While some of the infection prevention and control program requirements I'm about to share are not new, they are now a must-do rather than a shall-do. So here they are. The facility must have a designated trained infection preventionist on site. This is a new requirement. The facility must have a system in place for preventing, identifying, recording, reporting, investigating, and controlling infectious diseases. In addition, the infection preventionist must establish an ongoing surveillance system to collect, analyze, interpret, and share infection data, all for the purpose of reducing morbidity and mortality and to improve health. Another new requirement is the establishment of an antimicrobial stewardship program, or ASP. That includes antibiotic use protocols, as well as systems for monitoring antibiotic utilization. Since we should never collect data just for the sake of collecting it, there must be a forum for oversight. This is where your quality, your quarterly quality assurance and performance improvement, or QAPI committee, comes into play. And then for residents with a communicable disease, Isolation practices must be the least restrictive possible, given the circumstances. There must be a communication process for the interfacility transfer of residents who are infected or colonized with such diseases. Now, there's no need to reinvent the wheel here. Simply adopt the CDC's Interfacility Infection Control Transfer Form, which can be downloaded from their website. Other requirements include the need for the sanitary management of linens, including handling, storage, processing, and transport. And then finally, the facility must conduct an annual review of its infection prevention and control program and update it as national standards and guidelines change. So as you can see, Kevin, the regulations are quite comprehensive, ranging from having a dedicated infection preventionist to linen management. Yeah, I want to thank you, Doe, and thank you, Dean, for sharing this information with our global listeners. We're now going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we'll continue discussing the unique infection control challenges posed with the new CMS rules for long-term care with Dean Kirshner and Doe Clay. Stay tuned, and we will return after these messages from our sponsor, Rebiotics. life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Join us on November 6th and 7th for the 7th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo taking place at the Doubletree Westport Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. To view the conference details and register online, visit the C. diff Foundation's website at cdifffoundation.org. Again, that's cdifffoundation.org. We look forward to meeting you in November. Rebiotics, a Faring Pharmaceuticals company, has set out to understand the connection between the microbiome and disease through clinical study and innovative science. Our clinical studies investigate the potential of the microbiome as a therapeutic option for patients with unmet medical needs. Our focus is currently on patients suffering from recurrent C. diff infection. Partnerships drive innovation in the growing field of microbiome technologies, and we're excited to continue to share our findings in the space. Visit Rebiotics.com, R-E-B-I-O-T-I-X.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean, dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program. I'm Kevin Hirsch, your host for today, and I have the honor to be with two incredible professionals. Dean Kirshner, Director of Nursing for Lincoln Glen Manor in San Jose, California, and Doe Cly, Senior Infection Preventionist for the Clorox Company. And we're going to continue discussing the unique infection control challenges posed by the new CMS rules for long-term care. Now, Doe, thanks for providing some of the infection control changes before going to our commercial break. Can you tell us a little bit about the policies that CMS requires for long-term care facilities to have in place? Kevin, I am so glad that you asked that question because an infection prevention and control program is truly only as good as its policies. The new regulations do require that the facility has written standards and specific infection prevention and control policies and procedures that are based on recognized evidence-based guidelines. There's quite a few required policies, but I'm only going to touch on a few. The entire list of required policies can be found in the interpretive guidance of Title 42 for this new regulation. One of the most important policies for any infection prevention and control program is hand hygiene. After all, this is where all infection control begins, and it is well established that it is the single most important thing that we can do to prevent transmission. Be sure that this policy addresses the placement of sinks and hand sanitizer in resident care areas and in food and medication prep areas. Another very important policy is standards and transmission-based isolation precautions. Be sure to include how and when to use these precautions. Also be sure to include the duration of isolation. 
This policy should include resident room assignment based on the infection status and likelihood of transmission. Don't forget to include the selection of and proper donning and doffing of personal protective equipment or PPE. Another very important policy is cleaning and disinfection of environmental surfaces and shared medical equipment. Because so much of the medical equipment is portable and moves from room to room, this policy is critical to providing a clean and sanitary environment to reduce the risk of pathogen transmission. I do like to point out that our hands are really only as clean as the environment. And then finally, a policy that addresses staff education and competency assessment is required. This helps to ensure compliance with infection control practices. Along these same lines, a policy is needed on infection control education for residents and family members. Important elements for this policy are hand hygiene and cough etiquette. Thanks for the review of the key required policies. I've heard the term process surveillance. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is? Yes, process surveillance is a routine monitoring of various infection control practices. It's a very important and often overlooked part of the infection prevention and control program. In addition to infection surveillance, CMS now requires that facilities perform process surveillance as well. The data gathered provides actionable and measurable indicators for performance improvement. Examples include monitoring your hand hygiene compliance, isolation practices, use of PPE, and cleaning and disinfection practices. Data should be collected and reported along with the HAI rates in the QAPI meeting. Action taken in response to the data needs to be documented. Such action might include education or even evaluating new products. But remember, not documented, not done. Dean, you have spent your entire nursing career in long-term care, so I'm sure that you have some great insight into some of the unique challenges in infection control that long-term care facilities face. Can you discuss some of the resource challenges? Yes, I'd love to. Long-term care facilities definitely face some unique infection control challenges. To start off, long-term care facilities must contend with general lack of resources, including adequate staffing when compared to the acute care setting. Frontline staff turnover can be high, making having an experienced and knowledgeable workforce difficult. The nurse-to-patient ratio is much higher in the long-term care setting in comparison to acute care, but the acuity of these patients is higher than it was 20 years ago. In fact, many of today's long-term care patients would have been in the hospital several years ago. Patient acuity will only continue to increase as more and more health care is transitioned from hospitals to alternative care settings. A nurse in the long-term care setting with several aides to assist him or her may be responsible for as many as 20 to 30 patients. In comparison, a nurse on a general med surge unit in a hospital may be responsible for only five. In the state of California, long-term care facilities are required to provide 3.5 hours of direct patient care each day, with 2.4 of those hours required to be filled by certified nurse assistants. Due to the current low unemployment rates, many facilities are struggling to hire enough certified nurse assistants to fill these hours. 
The typical wage for a nursing assistant is only a few dollars above minimum wage, but is very physically and mentally demanding work. To add complexity to this resource issue, many of the staff are stretched and must wear multiple hats in order to manage the day-to-day care of residents. For example, the director of nursing might also be the designated infection preventionist, while the assistant director of nursing might also be the educator or director of staff development. Yet another resource issue is funding. There are costs associated with an infection prevention and control program. These include the required initial and ongoing training for the infection preventionist, the cost in time and resources to conduct infection surveillance and process surveillance, and the cost of infection prevention supplies such as hand hygiene products and personal protective equipment. The majority of the income for long-term care facilities comes from government reimbursement. Much of this comes from governmental funding, as most Americans over the age of 65 have Medicare insurance. It's important to note that many of the residents are also Medicaid recipients, which does not actually cover all the costs of caring for a resident in long-term care. Also, most long-term care facilities are for-profit, and the profit margin is often not high enough for infrastructure improvements or higher pay for qualified staff. These limited resources, in turn, affect the type and extent of infection control programs developed. I have to say, on a personal note, this is very eye-opening information. So um, I'd like to ask you, Dean, in addition to resource challenges, are there other challenges? Yes. Unfortunately, Kevin, there are. Yet another challenge is that the facility is also the resident's home. Hence, we call them residents, not patients. So balance must be found between infection control and the resident's comfort and quality of life. For example, CMS requires the least restrictive isolation measures possible and based on the resident's ability and willingness to follow instructions. But interpretation of the quote-unquote least restrictive is left to the individual facility. These relaxed isolation practices could result in pathogen transmission. Additionally, CMS requires that group activities are offered. This is their home, after all. Having groups in common areas, such as activities or dining halls, can increase risk for exposure and transmission. Other infection control challenges for the long-term care facility include shared rooms and bathrooms, Cognitive deficits, which can mean a lack of compliance with basic sanitary practices such as hand hygiene and cough etiquette. Also, urinary and bowel incontinence, which is common in this population and increases cross-contamination risk. What about challenges around antibiotic stewardship, which is a new requirement? Yes, great question, Kevin. Since this is now a requirement for long-term care facilities, Overuse of antibiotics is a common problem in this setting. Only a handful of new antibiotics have come to market in the past two decades. If the development of resistance continues at its current pace, we will likely enter a post-antibiotic era. In fact, some speculate that we are probably in the beginnings of it now. According to the CDC, antibiotics are some of the most commonly prescribed medications in long-term care with somewhere between 50 to 70% of residents receiving an antibiotic over the course of the year. 
And over 75% of those antibiotics are incorrectly prescribed. This overuse of antibiotics is a leading driver of multi-drug resistance and C. difficile infections. Educating nurses on antimicrobial stewardship is probably more important in this setting than the acute care setting because without physicians on site, nurses are heavily relied on for care decisions. Physician education is also needed since they often will respond to nurses or family requests for antibiotics even when not always indicated. One antimicrobial stewardship area that needs particular attention is UTIs or urinary tract infections. Proper diagnosis of UTI is extremely important to reducing inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. Studies show that one in three prescriptions in long-term care is for treatment of UTI, but many of these cases are not true infections. Um, What are some of the examples uh, that long-term care facilities do about antimicrobial stewardship? Well, a couple of things we do at Lincoln Glen as part of our antimicrobial stewardship is that we compile an antibiotic utilization report for the quarterly COPY meeting, which includes four things. One, antibiotic therapy and the suspected uh, infection being treated. Um, Two, which doctor ordered the antibiotic? Three, whether that order was a verbal order or if a physician was in the facility and wrote the order himself. And four, whether the symptoms documented in the resident record meet the revised McGeer's criteria for healthcare-associated infection. Another thing we do is we forward the 12-month antibiogram to the physicians and the nurses each quarter, which is provided by our lab. You know, this is this is beyond fascinating, and we do have to break for a commercial. So um, let's uh, let's break for a commercial, and thank you for providing these key points. We're going to pause, and when we return, we're going to continue to discuss the unique infection control challenges posed by the new CMS rules for long-term care with Dean Kirshner and Doe Cly. Stay tuned, and we'll return after these messages from our sponsor, Rebiotics. <music> Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. To help support the C. Diff Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll free 1 844 4 C. Diff. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Rebiotics, a faring pharmaceuticals company, has set out to understand the connection between the microbiome and disease through clinical study and innovative science. Our clinical studies investigate the potential of the microbiome as a therapeutic option for patients with unmet medical needs. Our focus is currently on patients suffering from recurrent C. diff infection. Partnerships drive innovation in the growing field of microbiome technologies, and we're excited to continue to share our findings in the space. Visit rebiotics.com, R-E-B-I-O-T-I-X.com. 
the CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety. Get answers to your questions. You're not alone. Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. To register for a session, call the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program. I'm Kevin Hirsch, and it's a pleasure to reintroduce our guests, Dean Kirshner and Joe Cly, here to discuss the unique infection control challenges posed with the new CMS rules for long-term care. Before our commercial break, we discussed the new requirements for antimicrobial stewardship and some of the infection control challenges that long-term care facilities face. Joe, can't long-term care facilities simply adopt the same infection control policies uh, that hospitals have used for years? You know, that's a great question, Kevin. Um, While hospital infection control practices can be a great starting point, They just simply do not always translate over well to the long-term care setting. For example, it's much more difficult to observe compliance with infection control practices such as hand hygiene or standard precautions in this setting. In contrast, in the busy hospital setting, it's much easier to be discreet while collecting this data. Additionally, long-term care facilities often do not have the financial resources that hospitals do to purchase high-tech alternatives such as electronic hand hygiene monitoring systems. Dean, in regards to cleaning and disinfection, what do you find to be the most challenging? Well, Kevin, there unfortunately is limited data on cleaning and disinfection in the long-term care setting. However, it is not unrealistic to think, given the limited resources, that perhaps cleaning and disinfection might be compromised. The high rates of healthcare-associated infections and multidrug-resistant organisms in this setting certainly supports this line of thinking. In fact, a three-year pilot study conducted by CMS between the years of 2015 and 2018 found that 80% of facilities had important gaps in their environmental cleaning programs using the CDC's infection control assessment and response tool. Another 30-facility study conducted by the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services in 2017 found the top three cleaning and disinfection program gaps to be that staff had not received job-specific training or competency validation within the past year, facilities did not regularly audit the quality of cleaning and disinfection, And the third item, there were no policies to ensure that medical equipment were cleaned and disinfected between residents. Dean, thank you for bringing light to some of these many challenges that long-term care faces. Doe, 
Can you share your thoughts on how to tackle some of these challenges? I'd love to. So healthcare-associated infections cannot be effectively prevented without a solid infection prevention and control program. The infection preventionist should take the time to familiarize him or herself with the regulatory requirements, such as those from CMS or even from state health codes. The infection preventionist should also be well-versed on accepted national standards or guidelines, like those provided by the CDC. The infection preventionist needs to evaluate the current infection prevention and control program. This evaluation should include a gap analysis, which is essentially comparing your program elements with what's required. Is anything missing from the program, such as a robust antimicrobial stewardship program that's in alignment with CDC recommendations? What about specific policies or maybe process surveillance data? Next, the infection preventionist needs to conduct a facility assessment. CMS has a great tool that can be found on their website at cms.gov. Inclusion of both community and facility-specific demographic data is an important way to start this assessment. Community info can be obtained from the U.S. Census Bureau or even from the city or county websites. The basic demographic data that should be included are population, median age, racial composition, poverty level, and community-associated infection risks. It's also important to consider the region of the country where the facility is located, as this can impact infection risks. For example, states with high humidity may face mold and fungal issues that drier states simply do not. Also consider that facilities located in an inner city will likely face issues different than would a rural facility. Once you've assessed the community dynamic, you're ready to gather the facility-specific information. This should include things such as the facility type, the number of beds, the average daily census, staffing, services provided, the occupational health program, HAI rates, process surveillance data, vaccination rates, status of the antimicrobial stewardship program, approved disinfectants, and even policy status. Other considerations to include, what are the most common diagnoses of the patients being admitted to your facility? How about infection control resources? How many infection preventionists are on staff? What is their training? How many hours per week are they able to dedicate to infection control tasks? Once the program eval is completed, the infection preventionist can now turn his or her attention to the risk assessment. This will help in ranking the various infection risks as high, medium, or low. While it's tempting to try to tackle every issue identified, it's simply not realistic. The risk assessment enables prioritization of infection prevention and control activities. After all, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. There are risk assessment templates that can be downloaded from the APIC or the CDC website, and these can be modified to meet your needs. So now that all this information has been gathered, what's next? Well, based on the findings from the program evaluation and from the risk assessment, the top four to five goals can be entered into the infection control work plan. At a minimum, all risks that were identified as high in the risk assessment should be addressed in this plan. Goals should be SMART, which is an acronym standing for the S is specific, the M is measurable, A is achievable, R is realistic, and the T means time-bound. 
The activities needed to reach the goals should be outlined in the work plan. Be sure to consider and include all stakeholders. This is a team sport after all. This should be collaborative. Lastly, the plan should include a timeline for completing the various activities to keep the team on track. Think of your infection control work plan as a care plan for your infection prevention program. And last, we previously mentioned CMS now requires long-term care facilities to have an antimicrobial stewardship program in place. A great starting place is to use the CDC's checklist for antibiotic stewardship in nursing homes, which can be downloaded from their website. The core elements that should be included in the program are commitment from your leadership, accountability, you need to identify leads to oversee stewardship activities, and then drug expertise. Establish access to a consultant pharmacist. Action. Implement at least one policy or practice to improve antibiotic use. Tracking. Monitor at least one process measure and outcome of antibiotic use. Reporting. Ensure a system to provide regular feedback on antibiotic use and resistance to prescribing clinicians, nursing staff, and other relevant staff. And then finally, education. Provide resources to clinicians, nursing staff, residents, and families about antibiotic resistance. Can you provide our listeners with some solutions for the cleaning and disinfection program? I sure can. Um, it's very important to routinely clean and disinfect the long-term care environment and the shared medical equipment. A recent study conducted by the Veterans Administration found that, not surprisingly, Residents have considerable contact with the environmental surfaces outside of their rooms, such as in the dining hall, lounge or TV room, group activity areas, and therapy areas. Residents have contact with environmental surfaces in these areas between 6 to 18 times each hour. This study highlights the importance of frequent cleaning and disinfection of high-touch surfaces outside of the resident's room. Also, it's highly recommended that the facility have a products council to assist in making disinfection decisions from products to placement to protocols. This council should consider the properties of an ideal disinfectant. And these properties include the product should be broad spectrum, fast acting, remains wet for the prescribed contact time, is non-toxic, has good surface compatibility, it should be easy to use, have an acceptable odor, it should be economical and have good cleaning properties, and it should not be flammable. In addition to selecting products that are EPA registered for use in healthcare, you'll also want to ensure that the products have kill claims for the most prevalent pathogens in your facility. Just like hand sanitizer, disinfectant wipes should be readily accessible in patient and common areas. I, I just want to repeat something that struck me when you said six to 18 times an hour some of the services are touched. Are there, are there any other specific product recommendations that you have for long-term care facilities? Well, in addition to evaluating the product, it's important to think about the different environments in the facility. For example, a CDF isolation room should be cleaned with a sporocidal disinfectant, such as Clorox Healthcare bleach germicidal wipes, which kill C. diff in three minutes. Fusion is another great product for isolation rooms. It's a spray with a very mild smell, and it can kill C. diff in only two minutes. For non-isolation areas and your general day-to-day cleaning and disinfecting, a wipe like Clorox Healthcare's hydrogen peroxide wipes would be a good option, as it has a very short one-minute contact time. 
And if urine odor or other body fluid stains to soft surfaces are an issue in your facility, Clorox Pro Bio Stain and Odor Remover is a must-have, especially in carpeted facilities. I absolutely love this product because it doesn't mask odors, but rather it breaks down the biosoils and kills the microbes that are actually causing the odor. And it disinfects too, including bloodborne pathogens. You can find out more information about these products at www.cloroxhealthcare.com. And please don't forget the importance of educating and training all staff, not just EVS. It's vitally important that products are used correctly and that directions for use are followed, such as contact time. Such education and training and competency should occur on hire, anytime there's a change in disinfectant, equipment, or protocol, and at least annually as a refresher. Clorox Healthcare recognizes the challenge of training and has a suite of resources available for our customers, such as implementation toolkits and cleaning checklists. And finally, please show our hardworking cleaning professionals the respect that they deserve for ensuring that our facilities are clean and safe. And those are such valuable points. Thank you so much. We're going to break now for a commercial. And so that was really in-depth information. So at this time, um, we're going to break. And when we return, we're going to be reviewing the key points discussed with our guests, Dean Kirshner and Doe Cly. And stay tuned. And we'll return after these messages from our sponsor, Rebiotics. <music> Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Join us on November 6th and 7th for the 7th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo taking place at the Doubletree Westport Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. To view the conference details and register online, visit the C. diff Foundation's website at cdifffoundation.org. Again, that's cdifffoundation.org. We look forward to meeting you in November. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety. Get answers to your questions. You're not alone. Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 919-201-1512 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org. Rebiotics, a faring pharmaceuticals company, has set out to understand the connection between the microbiome and disease through clinical study and innovative science. Our clinical studies investigate the potential of the microbiome as a therapeutic option for patients with unmet medical needs. Our focus is currently on patients suffering from recurrent C. diff infection. Partnerships drive innovation in the growing field of microbiome technologies, and we're excited to continue to share our findings in the space. Visit Rebiotics.com, R-E-B-I-O-T-I-X.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean, dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. 
For additional information on hand-washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to C. Diff Spores and More. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and we thank our global listeners joining us today. I'm Kevin Hirsch, and I'm your host for the today. It is my pleasure to once again introduce our guest, Dean Kirshner, Director of Nursing for Lincoln Glen Manor in San Jose, California, and Doe Cly, Senior Infection Preventionist for the Clorox Company. And we're going to conclude our conversation on a very informative topic the unique infection control challenges posed with the new CMS rules for long-term care. It's been a very informative session. Dean, where can the facility-designated infection preventionist find resources to help with all of this? Well, Kevin, first, it's important to remember that as infection preventionists, you are not alone. Unlike in the past, today there are plenty of evidence-based tools and resources to help the long-term care infection preventionists with program planning. Some of these tools include state and local public health departments, state healthcare-associated infection program liaisons, state quality improvement networks, CMS, accrediting bodies, and professional organizations such as APIC, the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. The CDC also has nursing home infection control courses offered online at no cost. CMS is recommending that long-term care infection preventionists take this training. Would you like to share any closing comments before we end our show today? Yes, it's important to note that healthcare is shifting more and more from hospitals to alternative settings. This, coupled with our aging population, heightens the importance of the provision of safe and quality care in the long-term care setting. CMS has made some important changes in the requirements of participation, such as the need for a designated on-site infection preventionist, an antimicrobial stewardship program, a robust cleaning and disinfection program, and various policies and procedures. Again, it is important that not only healthcare-associated infections are tracked, but also the infection control practices. This requirement is, the requirement is that these are now monitored through a process surveillance system. And Kevin, this is Doe here. I would like to add that there is going to be a, a bit of a learning curve for long-term care facilities to get there, but I have no doubt that they will. In addition to facility-provided education, residents and their families should educate themselves on the prevention of healthcare-associated infections. They should never be afraid to speak up and remind staff and physicians to perform hand hygiene or to ensure that an item or a surface is cleaned before use on them. It's important that residents and their visitors also perform frequent hand hygiene themselves. Everyone has a role in breaking the chain of infection. I would also like to take this opportunity to shout out to any researchers who may be listening in that we need more studies on infection prevention and control in the long-term care setting. 
Research and other support for infection control afforded to acute care is a scarce resource in long-term care. And with that, Dean and I would like to thank the C. diff Foundation for this opportunity and for everything that you all are doing to bring awareness to this terrible disease and for the resources that you provide to healthcare workers and to the community at large. To learn more about Clorox products, please visit us at www.cloroxpro.com. You know, and, I, and Dean and Doe, I would just, me personally, I would love to thank you for all of this incredibly valuable information that you gave. I'm in that group of 65 and over in just a few years. And I love the planning that you have in this and the foresight you have to fight these infections. And for the C. diff community, they greatly appreciate everything that you've given them today. I personally am going to come back and listen to this recording once again. It was that informative. So thank you both very, very much. At this time, right? Oh, gosh, you. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. At this time, the members of the CDF Foundation wish to acknowledge all of the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health. The organizations and professionals researching and developing new products and ways to address C. difficile infection and prevention treatments, protecting the gut microbiome, clinical trials, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. To learn more about C. difficile infection and recurrent C. difficile infection clinical trials in progress and how to take part in a clinical study, visit the C. diff Foundation's website, www.cdifffoundation.org. So that's cdifffoundation.org. Help them help you to help others. That is so important. And we wish to thank Pfizer for being a diamond sponsor of the up-and-coming 7th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo being hosted on November 6th and November 7th at the Doubletree Westport Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. Save the date. This is going to be an incredible, incredible event. It's going to be very informative. We're grateful for the international keynote speakers joining us for this two-day conference and the corporate sponsors and industry leaders in the C. diff community who will be providing data focused on C. diff, a leading healthcare-acquired infection, microbiome research, sepsis, clinical trials, environmental safety, and much more. For more information and to register, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website. I'll spell that website out again for you, www.cdifffoundation.org. CDifffoundation.org. Don't delay as accommodations and available seating is now limited. So it's going to be a full house. This is going to be fantastic. We look forward to learning more together with you in November. And as always, we send out our get well wishes to all patients being treated and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Kevin Hirsch, with our reminder. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.